the exhibition about Stonehenge at the British Museum in London is gobsmacking. There's the feel of it being a once-in-a-generation exhibition, given the number and range of artefacts that have been gathered together, from polished stone axes to golden headdresses to wooden structures that have survived the millennia to delicate objects of devotion. It really is a must-see. If you're listening to this still, you'll want to get to it if you can. It's also, in my view, pretty good on the sense that human consciousness evolves over the centuries, that our ancient forebears would have experienced life in significantly different ways to us. They weren't just like us, but with not quite such good technology. They weren't seeking to become like us, as myths of progress tend to assume. Rather, our ancestors participated in life differently. I'm drawing on the ideas of Owen Barfield making this remark. He's not the only one. But the sense that in the ancient world, in prehistory, maybe even right up to the period we call modernity, people were much more naturally inclined to experience their vitality as coming from the outside in, rather than being nested inside themselves and seeking a way to reach out to the world. The sun, the sky, the stars, the landscape, others, the ancestors, animals, all shared in this participation with life and you knew yourself by knowing them, the inanimate, as much as the animate world as we now put it, and hence all these objects, all this effort was put into exploring, sustaining, expanding this consciousness of life around and about. The framing of the exhibition itself invites a kind of shift of consciousness to appreciate this, I think, wittingly or unwittingly, as you step into the large cavernous rooms with subtle lighting. Um, a quiet noise comes through the speakers. It's the noise of a wood with birdsong catching your ear too. It invites you to step out of the urban noises of London that you've just left behind and has a slightly trippy effect as you gaze at all that's been gathered together. The sheer beauty of the axes and other objects demands that they be displayed in beautiful ways, much as our ancestors made them to bring out the beauty of polished stone. There are literal portals, doorways that you step through as you go around the exhibition into new worlds of gold, mirroring the experience of stepping through inner portals to discover inner worlds that the gold could shine and invite you into. And then there's the use of projected sunlight on the walls of the exhibition space. There's a huge horizon you 
are confronted by at one point with the sun setting, depicted in artificial light, of course, but deepening our sympathy, which you can feel immediately and directly with the sunlight that our ancestors knew so keenly and well. The use of modern technology, I think, is quite similar to the use of ancient ritual and religiosity in this exhibition. We're performing our own rituals, creating our own temples for worship and the sense of connection by stepping into the museum. The blurbs do a pretty good job, if I may say so as well. They know that the shaman donned the extraordinary headdress in order that she might become half human, half deer. There's a wonderful offering cup, the first object that you've seen, which looks like a miniature Stonehenge. And the blurb explains this is the linking of the macrocosm and the microcosm. It would have been used probably for burning incense, but its echoing of the megaliths suggests that they spoke of the fractal nature of reality. There wasn't such a keen sense of quantitative notions that the grand would have impressed simply because it was big, rather it would have impressed because it conveyed the qualities of pervasiveness, of omnipresence, of power, that kind of spirituality. The ceremonial landscapes that the exhibition recreates are wonderfully explained too. The idea that this wasn't just an environment, this wasn't just nature, it was at once supernature. And then there's the collective sense that the builders had, it's explained, when they perform rituals as much as exercise their craft as they undertook the business of making and building. This was a sacred activity, even as it was a practical one. The two were deeply interconnected. The collective sense too comes through that people would have been doing it for the all, not just say at the command of a tyrannical ruler, that I think much as it's known that the builders of the pyramids in Egypt were not slaves, but dedicated their free lives to this, no doubt earning a living too, but wanting to contribute to the society in which they lived because that was to contribute to themselves. It's interesting as well that objects might be offered to the landscape as much as to human beings be they rulers or more ordinary folk. Life was felt all around. And the use of gold when it came in around the time of the building of Stonehenge is so striking because this is a new way of participating, particularly in the life of the sun. I think that our ancestors' use of fire and how fire would have stretched the light into the darkness of the night, how the flickering of the flames and their warmth would have invited exploration, dreams, rituals, quite as much as the light of the day. Well, with the ability to use gold, fire and sunlight takes on new possibilities. There's the swirls and spirals 
that arise around the same time carved into stones speaking i think of the energy the spirits the vitalities that people knew around and about them made manifest before them celebrated before them highlighted before them to draw the attention to expand the experience of life the exhibition also notes that figurative representations were rare at the time people didn't depict themselves we perhaps look for eyes in a chalk drum buried with a young child but i think that's probably as much our inner i identify consciousness seeking to reach out to another inner i identify consciousness rather than the outer consciousness of vitalities around and about that people then knew the individual didn't exist in the same way which shows up in how stone was carved so as to deliberately blur the boundaries between the human mark and the non-human mark again a form of participation a form of reaching into that which is already known and burials being about returning to the ancestors rather than say celebrating the lives of individuals like modern tombs this was about connecting with a wider sense of life and relating to that no doubt managing it in, managing it in part because that was to take care of yourself and your tribe occasionally in the blurbs to the exhibition modern sensibilities do appear there's occasionally the language of control rather than sympathy with the landscape with crops um, there's the notion of privilege making an appearance from time to time the person who could afford the gold headdress being privileged but i think that is a modern notion it's much more about symbolic individuals who participated in the vitality to share it to bring it to others they were a focus rather than a form of exclusion and this idea that meaning was made occasionally shows up too rather than meaning being discovered that great modern challenge that we have do we construct our reality or do we find reality within ourselves and so the inside of the whole world round and about or the people didn't have that problem i don't think similarly you know the ritual hats that are on display i don't think they imbue the wearer with the divine solar presence but make the wearer one with the divine solar presence and just one blurb asks whether individualism was starting to emerge about 5,000 years ago I don't think that can even be remotely possible it was way too early because individualism rests on the sense of independent I of a sense of deity residing within the human breast to quote Shakespeare and that's very different from the notion of sacredness and sanctity being found round and about riding the waves of that experience through rituals and religiosity rather than one person holding that within their heart individualism I don't think really emerges until very very recently 
one of the stars of the show to the Nebra Sky Disc, I think expresses this modern ambivalence about how we understand the past. I don't think it depicts a clock made to predict leap years, as is half suggested. I don't think it's made to decode the skies, simply for the reason that people would have known the life, the vitality of the skies within themselves, within their own life in the seasons. They would have seen that cosmic life unfolding every night. They would have known the pattern that was part of their pattern within themselves without having to write it down or represent it in some way. Rather, my suspicion is that the Nebra Sky Disc was made precisely to amplify this already known sense of living with the heavens. You know, hence, whilst it shows a disc, maybe the sun, a crescent, no doubt the moon, the cluster of the Pleiades and other stars, and then the two markings for the horizons, it also shows a sun boat to ride across the heavens with these deities that were so well intimately known. It was a portal to sharing more deeply in that life. This raises the issue as you go around of how they saw these things. And I think they saw through, not with their senses. We're very inclined to treat our senses a bit like cameras taking snapshots of the world around. But I think ancient people, to use Barfield's analogy, experience the world a bit like aeolian harps, make music when they're placed in the wind. That's also the spirit, that's also the breath. They sang much as the aeolian harp sang by using their senses to take them into the deeper currents and patterns of life. They didn't regard themselves as objective lookers on to the world. So it was much more about inwardly aligning with the sun rather than making predictions. It was about well-being, but with the emphasis on the being, making that well, about celebration, no doubt, about vocation, I suspect, we human beings having a vocation to be at one with the cosmos as well as find a life through the cosmos. Offerings and animal guides would help to cross these thresholds into other worlds, across the seasons, from the day to the night. When you need to continually navigate a course through a welter of lives round and about you, you need these guides to help you make the next step, to cross the threshold. It's a notion of spiritual intelligence born of participating, being immersed in great seas and floods of meaning and light, and about seeking more engagement with the spiritual commons that was freely flooding in. Did they need psychedelics to see these swirls. No doubt some people these days might ask, but my sense is I doubt they needed them. They knew them already, much as they knew of the afterlife and the before life. And so the decorated stone surfaces turned towards bodies in the tomb were making that manifest, invoking it, trying to connect with it more deeply, know it more fully. One slightly bad note is that the exhibition finishes with 
images of William Blake, his famous Albion Rising, his famous Ancient of Days, and two plates from Jerusalem, the emanation of the giant Albion. Naturally there, because they seem to show images of Stonehenge, which no doubt they do, but forgetting that William Blake loathed what he called these hideous artifices, the mighty threatening forms of what he called the Druid religion. He, unlike us, wasn't a celebrator of Stonehenge. He associated what he called the Druid religion of the ancients with sacrificing human life quite as effectively as abstractions and science can sacrifice the soul and spirit today. I think he would be turning in his dissenter's grave to think that his plates were being used to invite us to consider how Stonehenge might build Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land, as one blurb suggests. But it raises, at the end, the issue of how we relate to Stonehenge, how we know of the inside of the whole world. Do we know of that anymore? When Stonehenge itself fell into disrepair, the people that didn't think to look after the stones anymore knew that they'd found a new way into this life through the use of metal. But nowadays, we're not so sure, and so we live with uncertainty about what to make of what they made so much of, as much as what to make of life ourselves. We're not sure what our consciousness and vitality means. Some aren't even sure that the consciousness and vitality that's our most intimate, immediate experience exists at all. And I think this must be partly behind the urge to preserve and display the artefacts of this lost knowledge. It's not just for reasons of understanding, it's for reasons of questing. If we see these beautiful axes, if we see these golden discs, if we participate in what remains of their life, will a new life awaken within us? It's in a way to recall what William Blake knew, that even the Druid religion with its hideous artifices, with its overbearing forms, carries the light in some way, because if it didn't, it wouldn't exist at all. The light comes from everything, even confusing but impressive old stones. And human beings will always find ways to search for contact with reality about us, be that in museums, be that in stone circles, be that in the intimate objects of every day partly because we're meaning seekers, but mostly because there's always that life to be found.